I'm Katie Moon and welcome back to another episode of my series, The Mad Moon Podcast, in which I speak to other nurses and healthcare professionals about mental wellbeing and all things taboo. Today, I'm talking to the lovely Tash, who is a medical student. She talks really openly about depression, anxiety, as well as an eating disorder. So please be mindful, there may be some triggering topics and colourful language, as always. Hi Tash, thank you so much for joining me on the Mad Moon podcast. So this is the cheesy bit I just warned you about, but that, that's it, it's over already. <laughs> oh. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Um, we, like most of my guests recently, don't know each other. You're yet another guest who I think I just DM'd on Instagram, like, oh, do you want to come on my podcast? Like, so something about your page obviously drew me to your account and uh, luckily you just said you're like me where you speak to that many people your brain gets a bit bit frazzled but it's kind of just popped into my head now that I think your page you're really open about your own mental health and possibly a diagnosis I've got a particular post in my head that I'm sure I've seen you post this week um but we'll get on to that so before I go off on too much of a tangent um would you just like to share your journey in healthcare so far so what your current role is um just yeah sure yeah so I'm a medical student at King's College London Um, I'm currently integrating so between my third and fourth year of medicine um, I'm integrating in primary care um, which is fun but different in a pandemic Um, I'm also involved with the COVID vaccines at the moment um, at a GP in North London which again has been a really good experience very Mm -hmm. eye-opening I went straight from college to university Um, it was very very stressful applying to med schools Um, Um, which made me develop well it contributed to me developing an eating disorder at the time Um, obviously medicine healthcare degrees working in healthcare is quite stressful at times Um, uh, I have unfortunately um, I developed depression and anxiety um, but I'm now much much better which is good um and yeah I kind of share all of this on social media um in kind of a a mad five minutes I had during lockdown one where I decided it would be fun to overshare everything with anybody in the world (laughs) so that's kind of me (laughs) oh oversharers are my favorite kind of people that's exactly (laughs) what I get called all the time so don't worry I think today somebody just asked me how I was and I went yeah I start IVF next month (laughs) (laughs) I'm the exact same so that is lovely thank you so much for sharing I mean I don't see it as oversharing I think it's then they're really needed conversations and it's people like I'd like to say us because I believe well I know I'm the same because I've had really lovely feedback since this podcast that it makes a big difference and by being open it helps other people open up and not just to us but open up conversations in their life to Mm. loved ones that they've not felt able to so no I think yeah absolutely that you're able to share that and we'll definitely come on to that because I've I've got a diagnosis as well of depression and generalized anxiety disorder so I would Mm. get into that and you know tell you some of my strange and wonderful symptoms um but before we do can you just tell me a little bit more about how you actually came to say oh I'm going to be a doctor um oh gosh this is gonna be really cringy um 
I think the classic, I've always never thought about doing anything else really. I was naturally good at languages at school. Um, my mum actually did languages at university, um, but never used them again after, you know, in any job she's worked at. Um, and then the other option was medicine, but I never thought I'd get in. Um, I didn't think I was clever enough. Didn't think I was good enough. Um, but I worked really, really hard um, and managed to get in. But um, I don't think I ever, it's funny enough, um, since setting up Future Frontline, which is kind of this um, educational resource I set up to kind of inspire the next generation of healthcare workers and kind of, um, you know, be a source of information about all the different healthcare roles there are. And it's made me realize that I never actually considered um, a lot of other healthcare degrees. It was kind of always doctor, doctor. It wasn't like dentist, nurse, midwife, occupational therapist, um, which I don't know why that was the case. Um, but I think for me, it was just, it was definitely the classic cliche. I wanted to try and make someone's life a little bit better in a, re in a, pretty you know miserable time for somebody if they're in hospital um I just wanted to yeah make it slightly better um I wouldn't say I went into medicine to sort of fix you know fix lives what save lives is the mm. phrase um obviously that's a that's an added bonus but for me that's that's not what it's about um so yeah that's I think that was that the question I yeah, kind of got off topic <laughs> I mean I think the reason I always ask that is because funnily enough like the opposite of what you said in the sense that I had no idea what I wanted to do and then someone suggested mm. nursing and I just went for it I didn't consider I, I'd have definitely never considered medical school let alone any other like you know midwife physio anything mm. like that it was it was just yeah I could see myself being a nurse I'll definitely mm. do nursing definitely um but I'm always curious because I think it is quite common in healthcare that's like someone's parent so have you got any doctors in your family or are you the opposite no, I, I couldn't tell you what my parents do because I don't understand. Something in sales, something my mum used to work for BT, like telecoms. I couldn't tell you what that word meant. Um, yeah, basically you don't understand what they do. Um, it's nothing to do with healthcare. It couldn't be further from healthcare if they tried. My mum won't go to a doctor, which is another conversation. Um, but no, I have my sister is a dental nurse, but apart from that, there is nobody NHSE healthcare in my family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the exact same as me, except for my partner's mom, who was one of the people who said, you should be a nurse, mm. you need to be a nurse. But in, in my family, as in my parents and that, no, mm. nobody's medical, nobody's in the NHS or anything at all. It's strange, mm. isn't it? So, yeah. I was just thinking a bit more about the role you're in now. So you mentioned the vaccination clinic. And mm -hmm. what, what else did you say you were doing? What are you between? So when you say primary care... Yeah, so a lot of medical students do uh, intercalated BSc. Um, it used to give you points towards your um, F1 and F2 um, job, but now it no longer does. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically, I chose to do it in primary care as I'm thinking about GP um, later on. Um, so yeah, it's basically a year out of medicine doing a BSc in a year. Um, before and then I will start my final two years of medicine in August so yeah so when you say a year out of medicine what does sorry this is just me purely no, no. I still, no matter how many medical students or junior doctors and doctors I speak to I still can't get my head around this 
no so, you're not the only one <laughs> so what you know what when you said it earlier I thought oh because I'm completely deaf in one ear so I thought I obviously just haven't heard her right when you said intercalated intercalated is it yeah I've heard of that word it's, it's like a BSc degree that's specifically de- designed to be done in a year so oh. and it's a thing that a lot of medical students and dental students do um to like it used to be yeah it used to be like this thing where you got point it used to it started for like medical students that were interested in like research and stuff who had more of a scientific kind of um I was gonna say desire that's a really weird word to use uh but yeah they did that (laughs) and then more and more more yeah interest more and more people started doing it um and then it gave you kind of points towards your application for your f1 years so for example like some areas of the uk some deaneries like london areas are more competitive than other areas so it'd be like another thing to add to your like points points mean prizes kind of thing but it doesn't work like that anymore so Um, yeah (laughs) would you say you're just doing it for the experience then is it more like because i can't imagine Um, wanting to drag my education out so when I started doing it um it counted towards points and I wanted to put myself in the position which would give me the best opportunity to be wherever I wanted to be Mm. um and then um during the middle of our year they decided to take away the points (laughs) so we we won't talk about that that's surely they should say right the next cohort of medical students yeah it can't they can't do that after you're already committed I know, that's not what I know. you signed up for I know but apart it's not just about the points I suppose it's yeah it's been it's been a nice sort of break from the intensity of medicine it's given me time to sort of do other things which I have really appreciated yeah. just have to sort of forget about the nine thousand oh pounds <laughs> every now and again <laughs> I forget that student finance isn't a grant and it's a loan. (laughs) (laughs) So what does your day-to-day look like? Like is is it still like a lot of studying and then are you working or is it like placement? Like how does it how does this year work? So it's really varied for everybody depending on what specific IBSC you choose. Um, Primary care is I'd say it's a lot more relaxed than medicine. So we have two um, days a week of kind of like online Zoom seminars talking about might be leadership and management in primary care. It might be health inequalities. And then we have one day a week in a GP practice um, doing like a quality improvement project, sitting in on clinics, that kind of thing. Um, It has been a little bit more thin on the ground because of COVID. Um, So the rest of time I've been working at, a separate GP giving the vaccines um and then the rest of the time sort of writing essays social media that kind of stuff so I really I do enjoy kind of like my week right now because it's so varied which yeah. is nice yeah no, it's and I know lovely. and I know I won't have as you know this kind of similar year in a, in a long time kind of being able to do lots of different things yeah so I, I am enjoying it <laughs> Oh, that's so good. It it sounds similar-ish to the year I've had in the sense that I was coordinating the vaccination clinic in Coventry. Mm. I was I just left research for critical care during the at the start of the pandemic, and then I was I've been training international nurses on and off, 
as well as supporting like newly qualified nurses in practice and providing training and so it's been that like you've just said that really nice varied week where you just don't kind mm. of know what you're doing but it is it's just a bit of everything and it just it keeps mm. you composed doesn't it and keeps you engaged and yeah I don't I don't know how people do like really monotonous job roles it's the same Mm-mm. thing day in day out <laughs> it just no so no. with the vaccination clinic and this is from somebody who's worked in one. I was there full time for five weeks and then I was just supporting mm. for a few weeks afterwards on and off. How, have, mm. how did you find it? Because I think you pulled a bit of a face when you were like, that's been, or you said like, that's been interesting or. <laughs> yeah, it's been? it's been very eye opening. Um, I, I'd say that most of our patients are, are really grateful. They're really excited, really happy. Um, but then you do get a few patients who are very um, hesitant to have the vaccine, who um, want one vaccine over the other. Um, and yeah, it, it's been challenging at times. I'd say I was very naive to why people were hesitant to have well any vaccine. Um, and then it took me sort of actually one of my essays that I'm doing as part of my degree is on vaccine hesitancy um, and it took me to sort of go away and actually look into it um, and actually understand why some patients and you know more patients from some ethnic backgrounds were more hesitant mm-hmm. um, and actually think about what I can do to try and help that and I think the first thing is is being patient and kind of understanding rather than getting frustrated um, uh, but it, it is difficult, especially when, um, you know, we it's not like a, a long appointment. It's literally come in, make sure it's safe for them to have the vaccine, give them the vaccine, off you go, maybe with a bit of paperwork, a leaflet to tell them about the vaccine. So it's quite difficult because we're obviously trying to get so many people done in a day. At the weekends, we do a thousand patients a day. Um, and, you know, sometimes yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's, it's mad. In the weekdays, yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, it's quite big. We had um um Camilla, the royal family Camilla, come yesterday <laughs> to Where? say hello. I wasn't actually there, so that's sad. But to congratulate us. But anyway, yeah. So you know, when the over eighties were there, they were having to queue outside the GP because obviously social distancing and everything. Um, and then when it was raining and snowing, so we were obviously under pressure to try and get people in and out as quickly as possible. Yeah. But then it's quite difficult if somebody you know says. I want the Pfizer vaccine and today we only have AstraZeneca, especially with sort of, especially the latest press on AstraZeneca makes it really difficult to have those conversations with people um, and to try and give them as much information as they want. Um, And especially, you know, throw into it, this GP is in um, a borough of London, which is very diverse in terms of languages spoken, for example. Mm. Um, And I've never met so many patients who, um, don't speak English um, and then trying to get um, a translator getting language line um, or you know it's yeah it's it's been a really good experience for me and it's been it's been really nice to have some patient contact but um, yeah it's been very eye-opening in a in a good way though. Yeah I suppose I can definitely relate to that because we were the first hospital in the world to give the the first Pfizer vaccine. Mm. Obviously it was like every news 
place sky mm. everybody was outside the hospital in the hospital it was it, it was just a huge deal it just blew up and put Coventry on the map but mm. I started coordinating it like the second week it opened by accident I haven't coordinated anything in my life it was just I was the only <laughs> per- honestly it, I was the only permanent member of staff that was a band six so that was able to coordinate uh, and I didn't do a great job of it at first because I had oh, no. no idea what I was doing. It was carnage. Um, mm. There was no set job role for me. I didn't understand like what my boundaries were, what I should and shouldn't be doing. Mm. Should I be organising off duty? Should I not? Should I be? Yeah. Mm. It was just crazy. But yeah, it really opened my eyes to mm. kind of like the political side of it and the project management side of it. And like mm. you said about a thousand patients a day, kind of when you're just, in it doing the vaccinations and you're not on that side of things like the organizational side of it you don't realize mm. do you like the amount of work that goes into setting mm. up something like that like that like the clinic and the appointments mm. and how they get their appointments and like mm. you said, when you throw into it a language barrier that could be like an hour of your day gone yeah there's another 20 patients not vaccinated and obviously these vaccines have like set expiry and use by dates and you have you know they're really precious vaccines at the moment um and you know the combination of not wanting any wastage um you know depending on the vials they might have 10 doses six doses whatever um and obviously if you open one you have to use it within a certain number of hours so then making sure that you have enough people to vaccinate so you don't waste any is another sort of thing (laughs) And they're making sure. Mm. And then at the start, we had loads of people who were sort of um, a little bit inappropriately booked in. So maybe they were way too young or didn't, you know, when we were only vaccinating over over 75, I want to say, and like the extremely clinically vulnerable group. And it was really difficult to have those conversations with people. And it was a time when, you know, the vaccines were a lot more sort of, um, yeah, I think a little bit more sort of, we didn't have as, as much supply. And so they were being really rationed to make sure that the people most at risk of becoming seriously unwell with coronavirus were being vaccinated. So that was really difficult and saying to patients, having to turn patients away, actually. Yeah. Um, obviously I wasn't making that decision by myself. <laughs> I was the GP as well. Um, but yeah, it, it was really difficult, um, but quite important and making those sort of ethical decisions, you know, yeah. somebody's here and they're going to be invited to a vaccine at some stage um, over, you know, whether somebody else um, should be having that vaccine was quite difficult. Yeah. I'd say that was what I found the hardest thing is what you've just mm-hmm. said is those kind of decisions and turning people away and for me mm. some days it, it did it did land on me it was on my shoulder mm. that decision to to have mm. a consultant an ethetist no you can't mm. have your second vaccination because the rules are changing on the fourth and your yeah. is on the fifth so you your yeah. will be changed and you know they've worked like the whole pandemic putting themselves mm. and their family at risk you know you've got mm. same black ethnic minority members of staff who were more at risk and the fear that they've got mm. and all their carers for family members and I have to stand there and say no it's national guidance changes mm. I'm not allowed to vaccinate you today just because your appointment mm. is after that date and it was just that fear but this is kind of one of the things actually now that we're talking about that that brought me to start the podcast because I was in a state of moral distress 
that went against everything I believed in and my core values I, I wanted to vaccinate everybody I wanted to give it to everybody that turned up especially NHS workers and to have to say no I'm sorry mm. just and then you get all the rumors as well so everybody's like they're throwing vaccines away and it's like we never throw a vaccine away mm. we don't waste vaccines like it doesn't happen but like you said you've got the time so you can mix it and then once it's mixed mm. it can only stay that way for so long and then once it's drawn up in mm. syringe you've got so long and it's all that coordination and management of everything and then throw on top training and assessing everybody so every nurse that comes on shift I remember I had one day only two nurses turned up out of eight so well mm. three including me so there was three of us instead of eight and you needed two to draw up and check and then you were meant to have five to vaccinate and it's like what do, what do I do how do mm. I coordinate this like what it's just it was really crazy and that's something I like to ask people about so have, did you feel or would you refer to it as moral distress when you were having to turn people away and have those kind of conversations yeah um I've never thought about it in that way I think I had some personal reasons. So, you know, my parents are 64 and 57 ish, something mm -hmm. around that. Um, and, you know, my dad has underlying health conditions. And in the back of my mind, I knew that, you know, he was waiting patiently for his invite. And then you had people who, um, you know, told me that they had called up, you know, sort of 20 year olds, um, who had no health conditions calling up their GP to ask for a vaccine and you know GPs are overstretched by the mile um, and you know probably so fatigued that just you know whatever the reason is easier for them just to say yes um, so I was quite frustrated at times as well um, that that was the case and kind of what I found at times was that people who were kind of shouting and screaming and demanding were getting what they wanted and the people being patient and and waiting weren't and were being left out and not even being left out were you know still at risk of becoming really unwell or, or dying from coronavirus so that was kind of a personal thing which was really difficult to kind of just shut up and be like no patience let's not think about your family um so I found that difficult actually on like the flip side of it um but, but yeah I I find I found it really difficult with more so patients who had a load of misinformation sort of you know aside from the people who were hesitant to have the vaccine for you know mistrust and sort of historical political sort of real issues if you like um and then sort of the people that have believed all this misinformation about microchips about it containing gelatin alcohol um you know not blaming them i, I just blaming the people that had spread that information and you know, people that wanted one vaccine over the other. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not the advice. The advice is, well, the government guidelines are to, as you know, are to offer someone a vaccine. Mm. Um, it's not A or B vaccine. And then people, you know, walking away because, um, you know, they wanted X vaccine and we only had Y. And then knowing that they would be put at the bottom of the list. And, you know, actually, I knew that they were quite high, moderate to high risk, Um that was really difficult. I just wanted to just sort of shake them and be like, come on, please <laughs> have the vaccine. Um, so yeah, I think I was a bit naive and thinking it would be a really simple, straightforward job. 
Yeah. Um, but actually a lot of, you know, the actual vaccinating is the simple side of it. It's all yeah. the, the other sides of it. And, you know, um, for example, with like pregnant women, um, women who are breastfeeding, like weighing up the risks versus the benefits for them to have the vaccine um, and like allergies and everything. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a good learning experience, but yeah, really difficult at times, um, really frustrating at times um, and feeling very angry at times with sort of misinformation and people believing, you know, someone on Twitter rather than like a healthcare professional is, is difficult. Um, I think I've always thought that healthcare professional, I mean, I'm only a student, healthcare professionals and students were always trusted, which was, naive um and you know i think in in you know 2021 um a good thing is that patients are really empowered about their health you know it's not like the doctor says this so i'm gonna do that you know that's a good thing but then you know on the flip side it's like how would you how does this gp feel the gp that runs the vaccination center who's trained for how many years and you know they know their stuff and then you know they're not being listened to over a a journalist or somebody Mm. so frustrating but um yeah some lessons have been learned for sure yeah I feel the exact same there were definitely times where I just couldn't even get my words out and Mm. I mean we'll definitely get on to talking about anxiety um but yeah I I physically couldn't make words come out of my mouth Mm. because I was just so overwhelmed with all Mm. these things and I just didn't know what to do I just couldn't articulate Mm. it to anybody but it's really nice Mm. to talk to somebody who's been in a really similar situation because it it's that reflection isn't it like it's nice Mm. because this is now becoming a very reflective um episode for me as well um Mm. because yeah it's just it's just how do you deal with that and how do you like who's after you who's and it's just I think so chaotic an, it's like um, another thing that was thrown up for me was when patients were sort of verging on being a bit rude um and the whole thing of, of obviously remaining professional but um at what stage do you have to just bite your tongue in order to not compromise their health um you know I got called a liar I got called the devil um and having to sort of swallow that breathe not take it to heart and make sure that you're still giving them the best possible information and stuff. So hopefully they get the vaccine, which is the most important thing for their health, rather than having an argument with someone about they just called you the devil. <laughs> but I've never had, I've never been called that or been called, you know, told to my face, you're a liar. Um, you know, over I think the conversation was surrounding government advices to be offered a vaccine rather than one vaccine over the other. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was really difficult. I was like, oh wow, okay. Um, but yeah, I think that's something that you're not really taught at medical school, which obviously comes up when you start working. And it is, it's a shock. And again, I'm so glad you've brought it up because luckily I can say it was a few compared to the thousands, mm. I mean, oh, yeah. thousands and thousands it's only a few people yeah but I had I had multiple situations where somebody like slammed the door shoved a chair mm. and although that doesn't sound like a big deal it can, can mm. be very aggressive in 
mm. feels very aggressive when it's because of, a, of the result of a conversation you've had with them that that is their response to like throw a chair slam a door and yeah oh uh, yeah I had multiple times where people like you are pathetic like if I get COVID and mm. I die this is on your head like yeah your fault. I will make sure like taking my name down like you will you will mm. receive a letter to say that I am in hospital with COVID and you will know it is your fault and it was just awful but you had to well I had to just keep reminding myself they're frightened they are really frightened Mm. that is why that is why they're responding this way they are frightened Mm. but it was with us a huge issue we had is the link for the um for healthcare professionals to book their appointments had been Mm. sent to the wrong not to the wrong people but somebody had shared it externally when they shouldn't have done so when we Mm. were told this is the patient group you have to vaccinate the Mm. the next patient group of of healthcare professionals were had received it via someone else and they were all turning up for these appointments but we weren't vaccinating them yet they were next and we still hadn't vaccinated the hospital and our own healthcare support workers and our own you know community nurses and things like that so Mm. we had to turn them away and it just yeah it was just awful because you do you just feel you feel horrible well I don't know if you did but I I did I I hated having those conversations Mm. yeah and I just felt like is this a conversation I should be having do I get paid enough for this is this my role as a band six somebody more senior be having this conversation like and then they would even make me question if I was giving them the right information. And yeah, mm. so it's really, really nice to talk about it to someone. Yeah, no. And I, I think, yeah, just to highlight, I think just emphasize it, it was, it, well, it is just such a small number of people. Um, most people are so grateful, but it's sort of the, the negative ones that are harder to forget, I think, at times, like everything in life, I think <laughs> the negative things are hard to let go. But yeah, it's, it's definitely been, I think I've learned more in the sort of last few months vaccinating <laughs> than I have at the whole of medical school. Um, well, about how to communicate with patients, definitely, yeah. which arguably is what it's all about. <laughs> So Tash, you mentioned earlier when we very first started um, recording about one, having an eating disorder and two, about a diagnosis of depression and anxiety. So I think before we get onto depression and anxiety, because there are definitely some symptoms and some things I want to talk about with you and to see if you've experienced mm. similar ones. Um, if you don't mind just telling us a bit more about your eating disorder and when that started and yeah of course I really don't know much about eating disorders yeah of course so um this is sort of when I was 15 16 um you know around the time of GCSEs um I've absolutely always loved food still do um I've always been you know like a healthy BMI if that's important to you or not you know we could have a whole conversation about BMI but anyway I'd never had you know troubles of my weight or I've always been a very healthy size played lots of sport um and I always I I specifically remember I had lots of comments I've always eaten a really balanced diet lots of comments like oh Tash likes her food Tash likes her cake um came obviously from a really good place um so I had that I had alongside you know applying to medical school which is really stressful doing GCSEs really stressful um so you know I think subconscious subconsciously 
controlling my food was and my exercise was something that I could could control in life you know around 15 16 was when I was starting to sort of start thinking about my appearance started thinking about boys um started going to parties I think maybe I don't know it seems like ages ago now um you know sort of I never sort of thought about actually what do I look like I never cared I I now don't care but yeah it was around that time when you're I think naturally you're quite self-conscious um so I think yeah subconsciously I just started to sort of control my food and it didn't happen overnight I think it sort of started like oh I'll try and minimize how much cake I eat so people don't say oh Tash loves her cake um and then I think sort of over the next sort of year or so it just got more and more so I would you know cut down on different food groups maybe like carbohydrates and things I would increase my exercise so that you know I was running like 10 kilometers a day or something which seems crazy to me now um as I get out of breath after one kilometer now um but yeah so I think it was mainly surrounding the control side of things I've always been a bit of a control freak um and in a really stressful time which I couldn't control that was one thing in my life that I could um But yeah, it's funny because I think, you know, it's kind of, it was very gradual changes and the weight loss was very gradual over probably a year. And I never skipped a meal or anything. I was just very sort of made sure that I was had loads of vegetables and salad on my plate and a bit of protein. So no one really, it wasn't like, oh, Tasha's not eating lunch. What's wrong? It was very sort of, what's the word? It was disguised, I think. Um, I, and um yeah and I think because the weight loss was very gradual you know even my parents didn't really recognize it if you saw me at the start of the year and the end of the year I'm sure you'd be like oh my word but because it was so gradual um I the reason that it kind of was brought up as potentially an eating disorder was I went to my GP because my periods had stopped Mm um um yeah they pretty much stopped were so irregular um, and the first GP I went to and spoke to sort of put it down as um, PSOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, potentially, um, because my mum had that. And then so I kind of went away. I think I started taking the pill at that stage to not as a form of contraceptive, to, but to regulate my periods. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went back because I sort of similar thing I think I had no energy I can't actually remember what my specific sort of presenting complaint was but I remember the, the this GP the first thing that they started questioning about was like my eating habits and and everything and sort of weighed me and started talking about it and it was I think it was at that moment when I realized oh my word this is this is unhealthy this is yeah. gosh this is not right and I'm actually so out of control which I think was the ironic thing I was just so out of control you know I couldn't I couldn't eat a piece of chocolate probably at that stage um so yeah it was really difficult and um I was fortunate that I was never so underweight that I had to be hospitalized um but that's not to say that it wasn't really difficult and I think there's quite a lot of issues surrounding eating disorders and and sort of who gets prioritized for treatment because obviously if you are so underweight then it's you know physically your physical health is damaged but actually you know anybody can have an eating disorder no matter what your weight or size I think is really important as well to say Mm. um so I sort of put on the weight and then gratefully sort of start of a level year sort of 17 18 but I'd say it took another 
year to 18 months to really, really, maybe even two years um, to really, really resolve my eating habits um, so much to us. I'm at a place now in the last sort of year where I have a really healthy habit with food and exercise. Um, but yeah, that was kind of, that's quite a long, long story. <laughs> no, it's not. You've been talking for less than five minutes. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so did you have support to get kind of healthier with your habits? Like how you say that was like a, the process was really a couple of years. Mm. How, mm. what was that process? What did it involve? So it was probably sort of three to four years in total, I think, maybe probably longer. Um, I went to the GP and I was referred, so I was probably 15 or 16, um, and I was referred to CAMS, um, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, not explaining for you, but maybe for anyone listening yeah, no, that doesn't know. Doing that. Um, <laughs> um, but unfortunately, the waiting list was so long. I think it was sort of nine months at that point, but I was put on the list. Um, I was privileged enough that my parents paid me to see a private psychologist um so I went there twice but I really didn't find it helpful um it really wasn't what I needed really um um I had a lot of issues with my school um sort of trying to take control so I think um sort of dissimilar to depression anxiety um my anorexia nervosa was very obvious to everybody (laughs) everyone could see after I lost a certain amount of weight um so it wasn't really one of these silent mental illnesses so everyone was aware which was quite difficult actually um and sort of my school wanted to get involved and start weighing me all the time um so that was kind of thrown up but I was quite fortunate that I was able to with the sort of ongoing support of my GP to kind of check in with me and my friends and family what I found the most helpful at the time was being around my friends who I thought were all beautiful I mean they are beautiful and you know didn't have this weird relationship with eating that I did and you know I saw what they were eating and I was like okay it's okay I can eat that too um I remember going on holiday with them actually and you know just cooking with them and eating with them and and that that really really helped me um but I think that's why later on I mean and we'll probably talk about this in a bit but later on when I developed depression and generalized anxiety I thought I could sort of do the same again I was like oh okay I've done I've I've overcome eating disorders by myself (laughs) or a eating disorder by myself I'll just do this by myself which I, I couldn't do um so yeah definitely I you know it wasn't completely on my own I had the support of my GP but by the time that my sort of waiting list time was up and those months had gone by I was I was making I wasn't completely better but I'd made enough improvement that we were all confident that I could continue to to get better without sort of cams um but yeah we we know that there's a lack of funding to mental health services which is such a shame um but I am lucky that you know I had such a good family and social support around me um which meant that you know I could get better sort of independently yeah oh that's so good to hear though I'm glad that do you feel like you're recovered would you say or was it like an ongoing process? oh yeah it is I am recovered now 100 percent um it was definitely an ong- it wasn't just all about regaining the weight there was a lot of ongoing process after that and a constant battle but no I'm 100% recovered now (laughs) and 
we can definitely go into it now. So with regards to your depression and anxiety, when did that begin or when was it diagnosed or kind of, yeah, just tell us a bit more about that if you're happy to. Yeah, definitely. So I think anxiety is probably something that I've always, always struggled with. Mm. Um, probably stems back to school. I can always remember having, um, what's the word? Oh, I've forgotten the word. Sort of thoughts that aren't, sort of irrational thoughts um you know about all sorts of things you know for example driving in my car and thinking I've knocked over a cyclist and having to like turn around and check that I hadn't things like that um those kind of thoughts thoughts you know just everything like that so um I think it got noticeably worse and the depression started sort of my end of my first year at uni um you know I was just crying every single day for no apparent reason which led to a lot of guilt I had you know I was doing the degree that I always wanted to do I was in London where I wanted to be had a really good friends family um just got into a really good relationship I had had a really bad relationship a very short but bad relationship in in my first year where I was cohesively controlled um by somebody which wasn't nice which was um yeah it wasn't nice to say the least I think that may have triggered some feelings of sort of um self-doubt and yeah losing kind of self-worth is the other word um when somebody tells you these things I think you do start to believe them after a while um that you aren't worthy so that that definitely didn't help um but yeah I sort of battled these these emotions and feelings by myself for sort of a year a year and a half I think a year and a half yeah and then you know I was pushing away friends family my current partner who's still my partner now um and just was really miserable and it was that stage where I realized I needed to do something about it and I I first went to a counselor through uni and I think it was then where I realized it was a lot worse than I thought it was I had so many things thrown up then and I was like whoa how have I actually coped with all of this on my own then I went to my GP um which I just wish I'd done sooner (laughs) Yeah, I can completely relate to that. I mean, two things that you said there, like I, I was really lucky that, well, I, I kind of was and wasn't that I, I was just sold a house. So I'd sold a mm-hmm. house, I'd gone through a really big breakup and he bought mm-hmm. me out of our first house and we were engaged and had a dog and, you know, mm-hmm. all that. And we're, we're back together now. But in a way, it helped me because I had a little pot of money. So mm-hmm. I was able to fund my own my own psychotherapy and... Mm -hmm. like you as well I ended up I had therapy first and then um, went to the GP and I started antidepressants and it it was the best decision I ever made and I just Mm. why did I not come here sooner so why why have I put this up and thought sort of Mm. thought I could do it on my own and is that what is that how you felt absolutely and um the first time I went to my GP was obviously sort of formally diagnosed with I think it was like moderate to severe depression and generalized anxiety um and sort of because I having been having counseling the um they said you know do you want to try an antidepressant and I sort of metaphorically ran out of the room at that point I was like no 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 I'm not taking antidepressant that will make me weak that will make me emotionless that will change who I am all of the stigma I believed it which we know is absolute crap um but I believed it and I really had to 
challenge those thoughts. Um, I remember sort of thinking, hang on a minute, I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to be recommending these things to my patients. If I can't overcome that stigma, like what on earth? So that was kind of the, it was, I obviously was doing it for me, but I think it made it easier thinking about future patients as well. But yeah, it took me another sort of one, one to two months to finally be like, okay, it's just another thing taking antidepressant. Let's give it a try. Almost like an experiment yeah. <laughs> for my future practice. I was like, hmm, let's try this out. Um, and yeah, I'm pleased to say that all that stigma is absolutely wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it's it just a... I always describe taking antidepressants to people as, I mean, I still take them now um, as something that kind of got me out of bed so that I could do all of the other things we know are really good for mental health. Like, so I could go to my CBT session so I could go out for a walk so I could see my friends. It was kind of the first step. It wasn't like an easy fix, which again is another sort of stigma surrounding it. Definitely. People do think that they think it's an easy fix and something I always say on my podcast to other guests who are like yourself are happy to say, yep, yeah, I'm on antidepressants because I'm on mm-hmm. different antidepressants now and my dose fluctuates mm-hmm. and changes and whatnot, but I'm happy to say I'm on a dose and a drug that is working really well for me. Mm-hmm. But I always refer to it like insulin. If somebody was diabetic mm-hmm. and needed insulin, you wouldn't say to them, oh, you don't want to be on insulin forever. Uh, they kind of do because it kind of keep, mm. keeps them alive so it's it's like <laughs> why is it that if I've got yes. a chemical imbalance or you know this and it's not saying that I'm, a, I'm an advocate for yes stay on them forever because mm. I've been on and off them I've changed them I've had long periods without them but ultimately if I need them in the same way that I had a headache and I need paracetamol I will, I'm going yeah. to take them and that is how I, you know everybody should have be like that that's that's what I think oh I completely agree and you know funny enough as I thankfully started to get a lot better um last year um sort of first things that people were saying mainly my parents love them to bits but I think older people do struggle a little bit more surrounding mental health um but yeah love them to bits the only thing we've ever disagreed on ever is um antidepressants um but the first thing that they said to me when I start well not the first thing but one of the first things they said to me when I started getting better was oh when are you going to stop taking when are you going to come off the antidepressants then and uh, honestly I I lost it at this stage I was like yeah, basically the sort of physical health drug kind of comparison that you said. Mm. Um, and for me, I'm really lucky that my side effects are, are really, really minimal with um, my antidepressant that I take. Um, I'm really lucky that I got get on with it um, in that way. Um, so I'm like, so what? I, it's a tiny pill that I take just before I go to bed. It takes probably three seconds to take. Mm-hmm. Um um it's nine pound a month which I spend more on coffee um it's just not an issue like even if I have to take it for the rest of my life which like you I I don't think I will need to um and that's probably not the best thing um but even if I did if that made me better and healthy then so what (laughs) it's crazy isn't it and I had the exact same mm. thing, like oh so when are you when when are you going to stop taking them well I'm not I'm working <laughs> I'm not crying yeah. every day I'm having panic attacks in the corner because I dropped my cereal <laughs> literally literally oh god so something I wanted to ask you about as well because you mentioned um your anxiety now mm. 
I'm sure I've spoke about this before on an episode, but um, I, when my anxiety is really bad, I have really bizarre, obsessive thoughts about really weird mm. things. So mm. one of the things, this is the one that I won't get into too much, into any detail, but I'll bring it up, was pubic hair. I was really obsessed. And I mean, I'd lie awake at night really thinking like what about but not just about pubic hair but about like why why am I expected to shave my pubic hair why what am I supposed to do why do people have a landing strip what do my friends do do they shave do they wax do they use hair removal and I just had this and I would that would go on for a long time and the one Mm. one that was really weird that went on for ages and literally I would lie awake at night overthinking this is in our garage my partner won a juicer and he won it in a raffle. We'd never use a juicer. I hated it. I don't know why we had it. I don't know why he kept it. It had, do you know one of those, um, those like fluorescent stars that you get from the post office that you put on like a raffle prize? It's, oh yeah, yeah, the post-it note thing. Yeah, it still had like that cardboard mm. fluorescent orange star post-it note. And I would lie awake, and I mean for hours, obsessing about this juicer in the garage with the fluorescent star on it. And it would just really make me angry or really upset. And I'd be really annoyed. Mm. And I'd be like, why have we got it? We're never going to use it. Mm. Instead of just taking it to a charity shop or giving it to my mum, who would definitely use it, or, or even putting it in the <laughs> bin, I would just lie awake obsessing about it. Mm. And I know you mentioned about a fear of thinking you'd knocked somebody over. Mm. Have you got, I mean, I'm sure you're not going to say you lay awake obsessing over pubic hair and juices, but... <laughs> What would your anxiety do to your thoughts and your brain? Oh, so, so, so much. Um, it would com- it would sort of worry about, I worried so much about driving and if I were to have an accident or run someone over or something like that. Um, I, I would worry about really, um, like, miserable things like that. Um, I would worry about my parents dying, about my parents being in a car crash, about my mum having a yeah, cardiac arrest or something. Just like that every single day. Um, I think would I told myself like I wouldn't be able scenarios. to. Would you play the scenario in your head of like someone yeah. calling you and telling you that like Tash yeah. yeah. your mum is in the hospital? Like I would yeah. play the whole scenario in my head. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um and just anything, you know, oh, maybe I, if I like cooked a meal for my friends, oh, maybe it was out of date cheese and now they're going to have an allergic reaction and they're going to die, <laughs> um, stuff like that. And the, the bicycle thing, knocking someone off a bicycle was, oh, it was so annoying. Um, <laughs> um, mainly, what else did I worry about? Did you ever worry about huge things? Like I would also really like get really upset. And for me, it was always at night when I couldn't switch off, but mm. like literally world hunger or poverty or period poverty, mm. like things that I couldn't change on my own. Or I would cry because I wasn't a vegetarian and I was a, a disgusting human mm. being. And that's awful. And how dare I like eat animals? And I guess those are quite... Um rational things to be concerned about though I suppose um to the extent yeah 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 I think I think it's interesting I think it just goes to show that um you know someone with the same disorder or illness have such a different experience but no I definitely did get those irrational 
irrational thoughts and worries that would just kind of escalate in my mind. They'd start off maybe as just like a sort of normal worry. Um, you know, maybe I didn't get a sign off for medical school done. Um, then it would, you know, it's not it's a bit, it's a bit something that's like, okay, you know, that's annoying. I'm a bit worried about it. I'll get it done tomorrow or something. It would just, you know, escalate so much. Oh, you know, I will get thrown out of medical school. I will become homeless because I won't have a job. I'll be a terrible person. Just something so small could, you know, escalate so big like that. Um, and a lot of things were worrying that I was a terrible person. Um, yeah, just, I was awful. Um, yeah, (laughs) not fun. You know, when you actually say them out loud and it wasn't till a friend. It's exhausting. What do you worry about? And I was like, and I just wheeled off all these things that I was Mm. worried about the night before. And it wasn't till Mm. I verbalized it to somebody else. And Mm. they looked at me like, I was an absolute psychopath or I was a ghost or and I was like yeah that sounds pretty crazy what like all the weird things have, that have just come out of my mouth but that is what mm-hmm. I like they're thinking about <laughs> so it's just yeah it. do you have any coping mechanisms is, or is there anything you do that has helped those intrusive thoughts Um, sorry, I think you I just lost you then. Yeah. Coping mechanisms. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, I definitely, um, especially for anxiety. Um, so I like to write everything out. I had this worksheet when I first started doing it and it was like out of, you know, a scale of one to 10, how likely do you think that this worry like will come true or, you know, how that kind of thing, like ranking how intense that worry was. And then, so this would be for things, you know, say, oh, I'm gonna get kicked out of medical school because I haven't got that sign off or something. And it might be like nine out of 10 at that stage. And then you would rank like all of the reasons why it was going to happen, which was quite a small list. And then all the reasons why it wasn't gonna happen on the other side, which was a lot longer. (laughs) Um, And then at the end, you sort of, okay, how likely is it going to happen? And just by my brain seeing that actually there's like hardly any reasons, sometimes no reasons um, logically, which is why it's going to happen, helped me. And then saying, okay, what is the most likely outcome? I'm not going to kick out of medical school and become homeless. Um, <laughs> and that really helped me kind of like numerically. And, you know, if some is quite common, you know, um, you'll be like, oh, I'm really worried about this. And your loved one will be like, oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> like you don't need to worry about that it's like oh that's not helping um so that really that really helped me kind of tackle the problem um I have lots of sort of more like distraction techniques I suppose things that I'm able to do mindfully so I never really understood mindfulness for so many years I thought it meant sort of meditating with your legs crossed on the floor um and for some people that's what it is um but for me that it's not so much that it's finding an activity or something that shuts all my thoughts off so for me it's very old lady like I like like to do puzzles <laughs> um or paint by numbers adult paint by numbers I'm so unartistic I'm not an arty person at all so I have to really concentrate on it um so anything like that really which or Sudoku is another another really lame favorite that works as well because <laughs> I'm not that good at maths and I have to focus really hard but those are really really great for me whenever I'm struggling and can't shut the thoughts up those are really really good um obviously it goes without saying 
talking to people. And I think talking through that kind of process that I just spoke about um, and, you know, asking my mum, you know, why, why am I not going to fail this exam? Oh, because you've passed all your other ones, Tash. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's helpful. <laughs> like giving an actual reason rather than being like, mom, I'm worried that I'm going to fail. Oh no, darling. Don't worry about that. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that, that really helped anxiety wise. Um, depression side of it was really finding sort of what made me happy, which yeah. sounds so simple, but it never really, you know, I'm only 22 now, but up until a couple of years ago, I'd, I'd never considered what made me happy. Um, obviously, you know, I thought medicine, my future career was making me happy and it, it was to a certain extent, but there were so many other things that I hadn't really discovered. And I think it's such a personal thing for everybody, what makes them happy for me. I absolutely love talking. I love doing things like this. I love talking yeah. about my life on social media. <laughs> um, I love writing, writing things like just, you know, like journaling kind of thing. I love reading fiction books. I love going on a walk and, you know, it kind of wasn't what my friends were doing. So it was kind of harder to find, you know, it wasn't going and playing a musical instrument, although I do love to sing. Um, so I think, yeah, I think investing time in myself, finding what made me happy was life changing. Yeah. Um, and it does take time because, you know, it's not like somebody, somebody else might go away and try a puzzle and be like, what on earth was she talking about? This is awful. <laughs> I feel so stressed doing this. Where is the corner? Um, so, yeah, I think it does take time. And a lot of us don't have that time in our lives to invest. But I think it's so important to take that time. Yeah. It is definitely and I'm so glad you said that because I'm a lot older than you I'm 31 and it's taken me a lot longer than when I was 22 I didn't have a clue what I liked doing I had no hobbies I mm. I would if somebody said to me what do you like to do in your spare time I'd have been like literally nothing I don't I don't do anything I'll get drunk I'll go out literally me too. yeah I had nothing whereas now if you ask me I'm like, well, I've got a podcast. I play the saxophone. I I've got all these hobbies and all these things and yeah. things that I do. And like me and my friend are just starting a business as well as working full time. And yeah, you know, it just kind of yeah, it's it's nice. It's nice to have something that's just for you and for your enjoyment, not not for anything else, not to earn money, absolutely, not for, for your job, but just because you enjoy it. It's just yeah, like it, yeah, and I think. I think I've always really relied on other people for happiness, mm. which I'm definitely an extrovert and, you know, I'm rubbish being single um, <laughs> and I'm rubbish when I'm not with other people. But um, so I think, yeah, that was a bit of an issue in itself and kind of mm. locked down. I went home to my parents and I was kind of not completely by myself, had my parents, but I was by myself and I, you know, my parents are working and I had to, I had to make myself happy. I had to find some, I couldn't rely on someone else for like the first time in my life, um, which was so important for me. And actually it's so freeing when you, you're like, actually I can make myself happy. You yeah. know, it kind of took off so much pressure from my relationship, from my friendships. Um, I was like, actually I can, you know, it's, I'm happy with you, but I'm also happy without you, yeah. <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to hit pause on the recording because I think that was it.
thank you so much for listening as always and please remember to subscribe rate and review it just make a really big difference check out the show notes for helplines websites to utilize if you a loved one or a colleague is in need of some support at the moment and if you don't already please follow me on instagram at the mad moon podcast twitter at the mad moon pod or get in touch via email the mad moon podcast at gmail.com and i'll see you next week when i talk to another lovely guest